are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm so pleased you could join me here this afternoon. As I record this, it is Thursday afternoon, right at 12 noon on the West Coast of the United States. And I'm here at home in an office in my back garden, and I'm here ready to bring to you an hour's worth of discussion of Bible questions, Bible issues, the Christian life, whatever it is you want to ask, although I can't certainly promise that I have the answer to every question by no means, but whatever knowledge I do have, I'm happy to share with you. My name is David Guzik. If we've never been introduced before, uh, I am not only someone who has a YouTube channel with a lot of Bible teaching and Bible resources on it, but as well, um, I have a written commentary on the entire Bible that some people find helpful. And you can get it at my website, EnduringWord.com. By the way, it is also available on the Blue Letter Bible website, blb.org. We love the Bible resources at Blue Letter Bible and recommend them highly. But uh, in addition to my written commentary in English, we also have that commentary translated into many languages. So if you know people who are would be helped by good Bible resources in Spanish, Arabic, Chinese, Italian, Portuguese, German, uh, Hindi, many languages, Russian, then by all means, please refer them to the website EnduringWord.com, and through that website on the commentary menu, they can be directed to what we have available in their languages, many times with dedicated websites to those particular languages. How we usually do it on a Thursday afternoon is I begin with a lead question. Maybe it's a question left over from prior uh broadcasts. Maybe it's a uh, something comes out on social media or email. This particular question comes from Dawson, and I think it came to us over Instagram. By the way, we would love for you to follow us. Um, we have a Twitter account. We have a Instagram account. We have a Facebook account. Follow us on the social media of your choice. Basically, what we're doing is we're just putting out little bits of content and inspiration from the commentary on those social media things. But Dawson from Instagram, I believe it was, asked this question. He says, quote, Why couldn't Esau repent as stated in Hebrews 12? Does there come a point where God will no longer accept repentance from someone? How can I know my repentance is genuine so that I'm not like Esau? Well, Dawson, that's a great question. Because look, um, if there would be something that would keep our repentance from being genuine and accepted before God, we would want to know what that is. And so what are the things that can affect repentance in that way? And how can we avoid being like Esau, as it's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 12? Well, let me begin by reading that passage from Hebrews chapter 12. Really, the critical verses that we're concerned with are Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17, but I'm going to begin by reading all the way back to verse 14 to just give you a sense of the flow. Okay, here we go. Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 14, where we read, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, 
without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Now, in my mind, this Hebrews passage brings up some very good and important points. It it, it gives us uh, a principle that's worth remembering, or maybe I want to just bring this up first, that repentance is, at least in some sense, something that God grants and gives. Repentance, in some sense, I hope you'll hang on for me to give a more full explanation of this, but repentance, in some sense, isn't all up to us. You see, the Bible tells us that at least in some sense, God grants repentance. Second Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 24 and 25 say this, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. So did you see that there? The, the idea there in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse, or I guess it was 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 24 and 25, is that God grants repentance to people. And then we also have Acts chapter 11, verse 18, that says this, when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Now, again, the idea there is that God grants repentance to people. And then I'll just give you one more verse along these lines. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? And again, there we have the idea that repentance is God's gift that in some sense, God takes the initiative in even in our repentance. No one could ever turn away from darkness and turn to the light unless God was working in them. Anytime we turn to God, it's always a response to his working in us. Now, I, I need to bring us to the other side of this as well. While repentance isn't all up to us, It is also wrong to think that repentance is God's business and not mine. I mean, I could just imagine somebody thinking, well, look, if repentance is something that God grants, then whenever God wants to grant it to me, great, and then I'll repent. No, no one should think that God repents for us. Listen, God will work in your life to give you a desire to repent, but he's not going to repent for you. God works in in us, but we may not even be aware of his working. So we shouldn't wait around for it. And certainly when God works in us for repentance, most of the time, I'm not going to say there's never an exception to this, but most of the time we won't feel it as compulsion. It will come to us as a choice and we must choose to repent. 
Friends, I have no problem holding both of these things in my hands. One, the fact that it's God's work in us that leads us to repent. But the other thing, you are responsible to choose to repent. Now, I would say that there are only two kinds of repentance that God refuses. Here's the two kinds of repentance that God refuses. Number one, insincere, false repentance. I mean, obviously, if somebody is repenting uh, or, or claiming to repent, but it's false, well, God sees through that. He's not going to regard that as repentance. God's going to refuse that fake repentance. Secondly, I would say the kind of repentance that God refuses is repentance that never happens. <laughs> I, I, I mean, but anybody who sincerely or genuinely repents, God will receive it. Okay, if that's true, how do we make sense of the Hebrews passage that um, that Dawson mentioned here? So let's take a look at it one more time. Hebrews chapter 12, and this time I'm really just going to take a look at verses 16 and 17. So take a look at that there with me. Verse 16, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. So, let's ask a couple questions. Was Esau's repentance false? Was it insincere? It, it doesn't seem as it was, but it could have been. Okay, now let, let's just understand a few things. Let me paint a few pictures here. Let's let's maybe understand the, the big picture here. Um, walk through court of the events of Esau's repentance, okay? Number one, in Genesis chapter 25, Esau sold his birthright. Esau and Jacob were the two sons of Isaac, Isaac received the birthright blessing, the covenant of Abraham from Abraham. Isaac was going to pass it on to only one of his two sons. And God chose, even before those children were born, that it would be Jacob and not Esau. Now, I I don't know if the boys knew that or didn't know that. But apparently, according to Genesis chapter 25, they grew up assuming that Esau, because he was the firstborn, even though they were twins, Esau was born first. They grew up assuming that Esau would have the birthright because in Genesis chapter 25, Esau sells his birthright to Jacob. Now, check this out. This is really a big part of the picture that the writer of the Hebrews is trying to point out here in Hebrews chapter 12. Not only did Esau sell something as precious as his birthright, he sold it for nothing. He sold it for a bowl of beans for a bowl of lentils, of just like stew, for one meal. Friends, even if that meal was um, prime rib and lobster thermidor, it's still too cheap to sell it out. But just for a bowl of bean stew, Esau sold his birthright. He despised his birthright. Now, in Genesis chapter 27, Esau wanted his birthright back, and he could not have it. There was a lot of deception and weirdness going on in Genesis chapter 27, but the critical words come from Esau's father, Isaac, who said, indeed, he, meaning Jacob, shall be blessed. 
Jacob was going to receive the birthright, not Esau. Now, right after that, Esau vowed to kill his brother Jacob, who got the birthright instead of him. Now, when Esau wanted the birthright back from his father, he wept. He cried tears, but there was nothing he could do to change the fact, first of all, that God had chosen to give the birthright to Jacob, but that he had sold it years before. Now, in Genesis chapter 28 through 32, Jacob went away to be with his uncle Laban for 20 years, not seeing Esau, Esau who had vowed to kill him. But I'm always fascinated by the fact that in Genesis chapter 33, when Esau meets Jacob again, Esau is a blessed man. Please understand this. And I don't think we understand the story of Jacob and Esau unless we understand the fact that Esau wanted the birth, uh, he gave away his birthright, then he won it, he sought it with tears, he couldn't have it, and he left Jacob saying, I'm going to murder you for stealing my birthright. But after that, Esau was a blessed man. Do you want to know how blessed Esau was? He could say to his brother Jacob, when Jacob was trying to bribe him with gifts, uh, buy away his anger with gifts, this is what he said to his brother Jacob. He said, I have enough. (laughs) Friends, any man or woman in this world in grand material things who can say, I have enough. They have true contentment in this life. That is a blessed man or woman. So Esau turned out to be a blessed man, but he never got the birthright. Jacob was the one chosen to carry forth the covenant that God made with Abraham and Isaac, not Esau. No matter how much Esau cried and repented, and no matter how much he was later blessed, there were still consequences to his sin of giving up the birthright. And friends, that is the real lesson from Hebrews chapter 12. I like what one commentator says about it, a commentator I really, really enjoy, Leon Morris. He said this. He said, it is not a question of forgiveness. He's saying this about the phrase, he found no place for repentance. Morris said this. It is not a question of forgiveness. God's forgiveness is always open to the penitent or the repentant. Esau could have come back to God, but he could not undo his act. And what was the act? The act of selling the birthright. The lesson is this. Our sin may make us suffer consequences that God's forgiveness will not take away. I mean, you, you could draw innumerable examples from this. Um, let's say a person gets drunk, which God says in his word, we should not get drunk. And then they get in a car and they drive and they get in a terrible accident and there's so much damage. Other people are injured on and on. Listen, I I believe that God can forgive that person and God will forgive that person if they're, if they're repentant for sure, but they're still going to live with the consequences of what they did. All the tears, all the sorrow, all the regret, even all the repentance wouldn't take away the consequences. And really, I think that's what's getting at there in Hebrews chapter 12. Now, 
I hope that's helpful for you, Darrow. But you asked a question. How can we know our repentance is genuine? Let me give you four quick points to understanding how we can know if our repentance is genuine. Number one, we should understand what repentance is. Repentance is a change of mind. It's a turning 180 degrees. It means once I'm facing this way towards darkness and death and sin, and now I choose to turn this way towards God and light and truth. It's a 180 degree turn. Repentance is not focused on feelings. You can't measure repentance by feelings or emotion. Or, but only you can measure it, I should say, by how a person thinks and lives. I don't want to give anybody the wrong idea. Emotions are not bad in repentance, but they're not the measure of repentance. If a person comes outwardly broken and weeping and sorrowful over their sin, that's a great thing. But the real measure of their repentance is not in how many tears they cry, it's in the life they live leading on from there. So we need to understand what repentance is, number one. Number two, we need to take seriously the idea of living out your repentance. Repentance isn't just feeling sorry for a moment. It's saying, God helping me, I want my life to be different. I'm going to depend on God and on the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within me to live differently unto God's glory. Now, it's important to understand as well, and this is number three, Give God all you can. In other words, when you repent, you can't give God perfect sincerity. Friend, I've I've got news for you. You can't give God perfect anything. It's impossible. You and myself as well, we are all imperfect beings. We have never and we will never give God anything perfect. But this is what we can do. We can give to God all the sincerity we have to the very best of our ability, not consciously holding anything back. We can confess all our sin to God. We can say, I'm not going to try to excuse my sin. I'm not going to try to minimize my sin. I'm not going to try to blame shift my sin. No, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring the real me ugliness of sin and everything, I'm going to bring the real me to the real Jesus. And then finally, one more point here on genuine repentance. Number one, understand what repentance is. Number two, take seriously living out your repentance. Number three, give God all you can, even though it's not perfect, give God all you can. And number four, don't expect that repentance will erase all the consequences of sin. Friends, I got to say, I think that's very important. And I think that sometimes that is neglected. That sometimes, plainly, we just don't um, give God a sense of, of, uh, of, of, we give God our repentance, but then we think that it's sort of magically going to take everything away. So uh, I think this is something for us to really think about for us to really take that measure in. Okay, well, um, 
That's about it for our lead question today. Let me skip on over now to the questions that come in our side chat and we can get going along the way. Let me take a look here. Um, Jonathan, by email, asks this question. Um, in Matthew chapter 21, the mother of Zebedee asked Jesus the following. Grant that one of these two sons may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. In verse 22, Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking for. And Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? Here's Jonathan's question. Does this imply that there might be a hierarchy in heaven based on suffering, trials, and persecution? Jonathan, um, I don't think that there will be a hierarchy in heaven in the sense that some will be better than others, but there will be reward given to us in heaven. And that reward will be based on um, our faithfulness in this present life. And so our faithfulness in this present life uh, is important for us to honor God the way we should and to receive whatever reward that we're going to receive in heaven. So I think that's a very good question just to simply say that John and James believed very much in a strict hierarchy in heaven. But the Bible itself doesn't tell us that there is a strict hierarchy in heaven, only, only that believers will receive more or less reward as it would be glorifying to God. Um, so I hope that's helpful for you there, Jonathan. Again, to stress, John and James believed that there would be a hierarchy in heaven, but the scriptures don't tell us that there's a strict hierarchy, only more or less reward for believers. Okay? I, I hope that's helpful. KK asks this question, what's the proper way to repent in prayer? Friends, I think a great pattern for repentance is found in the words of David in 2 Samuel, where David repented to Nathan the prophet after his great sin with Bathsheba and the far worse sin of murder, where he arranged the murder of Bathsheba's husband, um, uh, Uriah. And I just want to look for that verse here. It's in first, excuse me, second Samuel chapter 12 and um, verse 13. This was David's response. This was a succinct statement of repentance. I have sinned against the Lord. Now, it's true that David sinned beyond the Lord. He did sin against Bathsheba he obviously sinned against Uriah, whom he uh, murdered, and he sinned against all his family and his kingdom and his associates. But David really recognized that the first sin, in some sense, the greatest sin that he had to deal with, with how he had sinned against a holy God. I think that sort of Coming to God without excuses, without trying to put the blame on anything else, a, a good 
prayer of repentance before God won't have a but in it. In other words, it won't say like this, well, Lord, I'm sorry, but you know the pressure I was under. Lord, I'm sorry, but um, I, I think that is a, a good indication here to show that um, a repentance is is not good, that it's weak, that it's faulty in some sense. So, uh, I would say a good prayer of repentance is, Lord, I have no excuse, I have no defense, I have no explanation, I've sinned against you. And to simply put it that way, um, that kind of humility before God finds great favor with the Lord. And I think that's what we're trying to do is is come into that place humbly before God where we find his favor. Okay, next question is from SK who asks, is it acceptable to use alternative medicine like traditional Chinese medicine, homeopathy and Ayurveda? Okay, I don't know anything about Ayurveda, but I've heard of homeopathy and of course traditional Chinese medicine. SK, I, I would say that to whatever degree those things are truly medicinal and not spiritual in nature. And I think that those things are simply things. I mean, we as Christians are not into the application of magic potions or, you know, that kind of thing that will uh, do things on a spiritual level in, in a magical or superstitious way. We have no interest in that. Listen, the Lord God is our healer. And we're grateful for the way that he uses modical medical science, but we also recognize that modern medical science doesn't have everything understood. There may be some value in non-traditional forms of medicine, but the emphasis needs to be on the medicinal aspect of it. I guess what I'm trying to say is there is a legitimate caution over spiritual or superstitious things that are brought in under the guise of these things. We should only take things for medicine if we have a good reason to believe that they'll work medically and not because of some magical or spiritual power. The magical spiritual power doesn't exist in the Lord. His healing comes simply through the power of his Holy Spirit. So, uh, I would be cautious with it, uh, but again, if there's some kind of medical grounds for doing things, I think this could be permitted for a believer. Next question comes from Carmel, um, who says, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, what is meant by Christ leading us in triumph? In the NLT, it's Christ's triumphal procession. Well, again, I'll read that verse to you in the New Living Translation. It says, But thank God he has made us his captives and continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. Now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Um, Carmel, this is a wonderful question because really what it's drawing upon is the idea of the Roman triumph parade. Carmel, I'd really recommend to you, look at my commentary on 2 Corinthians chapter 2, because I know in that passage that I speak of this phenomenon of the Roman triumph parade. You see, the Romans 
would have a triumph parade when a great Caesar or general had conquered peoples in distant lands. They would come back and they would bring the slaves that they had captured. They would bring the spoil that they had gathered in battle. They would bring the generals from the uh, enemy armies that they had humiliated. Uh, They would bring back their own triumphant troops and they would march them in these amazing parades through Rome. That was the ultimate triumph parade, but they suppose they would have similar kind of things on a smaller scale in other great cities of the Roman Empire. The Roman Triumph Parade was probably the greatest spectacle that anybody in the ancient world could see with their own eye. All the pageantry, all the scale, all the the, uh, magnitude of that event would be amazing to see. Paul draws on that image of the Roman Triumph Parade And Paul says that he, as an apostle, and you could say by extension, all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we are marching in Jesus's triumph parade. Maybe we're counted among the soldiers of the Lord. Maybe we're those captives that Jesus brought out of darkness and we're marching in his triumph parade as his captives. But we are part of the majestic triumph that Jesus Christ has won over this entire earth. It's a beautiful, powerful picture, but it simply means that we are part of this winning team, so to speak, this this, uh, collection of um, winners and partisans for Jesus' sake, those who have joined with him. We are part of his triumph parade. So really, Carmel, I think that's the real essence of that question there. Next question comes from... uh, Andrea, who asks, are all angels male? Well, um, Andrea, the only... Let me go back a little bit here. Angels are only represented to us in the male, by the male gender. You, You can make an argument that because Jesus said that in the resurrection, we will be like the angels in heaven who are do not marry or are given in marriage. It may be that angels don't have a gender, but the only gender God represents angels to us in is the male gender. So I'm not going to say that angels are male or are female. I, We have no biblical indication of any kind of representation of a female angel. But I wouldn't say that angels are either male or female. But I would say God wants us to think of them as male. Because that's the only way that he represents them to us. Every angel that has a name in the Bible, um, Gabriel, Michael, those are male names. Anytime angels appear such as they did in the book of Genesis with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They appear as males. So God wants us to think of them in a male sense. That's the only way that he's represented them to us. In some ways, this is like something that I think is a very important issue that I don't, um, 
well, I do think is rising in importance for the present day. Friends, we must be very insistent on the idea that God represents to himself to us overwhelmingly so as male. There are a few places in the scriptures where God explains himself as having attributes that we normally associate with women or with mothers. Protecting as a hen covers her chicks. Um, You know, nourishing Israel as a mother nourishes a child, like in breastfeeding. But nowhere in any direct sense does God represent himself as a female God. Only by in a few places, and friends, when I say a few places, I mean you can basically count them on one hand. But overwhelmingly, God represents himself to us as male. Now, it's not because God is male. God is neither male nor female. He's God. But it was very important to God to represent himself to us as a male. I... I'll vent just a little bit here. I'm a little shocked at how some people will take four or five verses against literally thousands of biblical references to God in the masculine and act as if it's like an even wash. It's not. God has deliberately and overwhelmingly represented himself to us in the scriptures as male. You you can discuss the reasons why. I mean, I think I know many of the reasons why. But the fact of it cannot be denied. And, and for someone to say, God has represented himself to us as male and female is a gross distortion of the biblical text. And it is wrongly dividing the word of truth. It's taking thousands on one side and four or five on the other side and saying they're equal. They're not equal. One far outweighs the other. And again, that's God's self-revelation. Anyway, uh, Andrea, again, I would just simply say that angels to us are represented as being male. Okay, next question comes from Susan. Why does King Saul not mention that he knew David when he came to fight Goliath? Susan, that's a good question. And, you know, it's sort of, well, why didn't this happen? Sometimes it's an impossible question to answer because there could be many potential reasons why something didn't happen. Uh, But again, Susan, I I could think of a few reasons. First of all, um, when Saul first met David, uh, he was a very young man. And when he fought Goliath, it could have been a year or two later. And kids grow up a lot in a year or two. It could also be that Saul just wasn't in his right mind. I've heard something else, and I'm just sort of doing this off the top of my head. That what Saul really wanted to know in 1 Samuel 17, isn't it, in uh, David fighting Goliath, when he asked, who is this? What he really wanted to know is what family he came from. Tell me about his family connections. Because that would be very important, especially because he had promised to 
um, his, he promised his daughter to marry whoever defeated Goliath. And so if a guy's going to go fight Goliath, he says, well, what kind of family does he come from? So there's several possible suggestions here. Maybe Saul wasn't in his right mind because he wasn't always in his right mind. Maybe David had changed a lot in a year and a half or two years. Uh, Maybe Saul's question was really more about what family background does this guy have? I need to know that if he's going to marry my daughter. So those are some of the things that I think of along those lines. Okay, next question comes from Jason, who asks, Learning that the Psalms were originally meant to be set to music, has there ever been any credible renditions of what they actually would have sounded like? Jason, not to my knowledge. We are familiar a little bit with some of the instruments that would have been used back in ancient times, but we just really don't know uh, the tunes, the volume, the arrangements. It's really just all speculation. So I think it's fair for people to make speculation and to you know offer whatever suggestion they want to offer, but we really don't know along the way. So, um, can't be of more help to you there. We just don't know. Tim asks this question. Did Jesus let Judas purposely steal money from him as he was in charge of the money? I'm not sure if there's any relation this and with Judas selling out Christ. Tim, I think that's a really good question. And let me just say, yes, I think that there is very definitely a connection there. And if I could explain that connection, I would just simply say that um, Jesus let Judas condemn himself and add to his guilt, and he kept the way of repentance open to Judas. But Jesus certainly knew that Judas was stealing the money. There can't be any doubt about that. And... um, it is very much connected to how Judas sell, sold out Jesus. Tim, many people through the centuries have tried to offer different theories as to why Judas betrayed Jesus. Many people want to try to give a, um, a noble motive to Judas. You know, uh, Judas really believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but was frustrated because Jesus wasn't um, uh, sort of putting himself forth as the Messiah. So Judas wanted back Jesus into a corner where he'd have to show himself the Messiah. And then it all went wrong, and Judas was sorry about that. Uh, Okay, that's a speculation. I don't think it has any accuracy to it, but people speculate things like this. Many people try to think up a noble reason why Judas would have betrayed Jesus. Let me tell you something, Tim. The only reason given in the scriptures for why Judas betrayed Jesus was out of greed. He sold him out for money. So the same greed that drove Judas to uh, steal from the common money of the disciples, that same greed led Judas to sell out Jesus to the religious leaders for 30 pieces of silver. Now, I'm not saying that there couldn't have been other motives. You know, many times people do things from more than one motive. 
But the only motive that we're told about in the scriptures is that Judas did it for the sake of money, which is really sad and tragic, isn't it? Okay, uh, Yanni, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Yanni asks this question. Can you recommend a text that would help me to know how and who were the recipients of each book of the Old Testament and where they were written? Okay, Yanni, let me think about that. Look, there's a ton of books out there like that. I'm going to reach up to my shelf here and get one of them down, show you this book. It's an old book, but man, it's a good book. Haley's Bible Handbook. Uh, This little book, Haley's Bible Handbook, um, this is a great introduction to every little book of the Bible, every little and big book of the Bible. So that is a really helpful handbook, I would say, to the Bible. Haley's Bible Handbook. Any good study Bible can help you with this as well. And there's a lot of good study Bibles out there. So, um, Haley's Bible Handbook, a good study Bible, but there's one other book I'd like to recommend. And I got to say, I've been looking around for my copy of this book and I can't find it anywhere. And I'm wondering if I gave it away to somebody. If I gave you my copy of A General Introduction to the Bible by Geisler and Nix, would you please let me know so I can stop looking for it and just order another one? Uh, again, th- this is what I want to say. It's, it's, the book is titled A General Introduction to the Bible by Geisler and Nix, N-I-X. It's a great little book uh, introducing you to the Bible, both Old and New Testament. So, um, Yanni, that's what I would recommend. Uh, Haley's Bible Handbook, a good study Bible, and then um, a general introduction to the Bible by Geisler and Nix. Um, you know what? There's one other book that I would recommend. Again, I'm looking up here on my shelf to see if I can see it quickly. But there was a dear woman named Henrietta Mears who years ago wrote a book called What the Bible is All About. And man, that was a good book too. What the Bible is All About by Henrietta Mears. So anyway, hope that's helpful for you. Um, Let me go on to the next question from Tim. Tim, maybe Tim Wakefield. Tim, Tim. Um, Can people still live in the same house in heaven like husband and wife? Tim, I'm just going to give you the best biblical answer I can give to that question. We have no idea. None. Zero. There's just no way that we can know that question. So um, I can't give an answer to it because the Bible doesn't speak to it. Uh, Maybe it's possible that we'll kind of live communally somewhat in heaven. Maybe kind of in a perfect communal setting. Um, But we're just not told any way about this one way. Um, uh, Emmanuel? I don't know if you can hear the chickens outside. I can hear them. I don't know what they're squawking about, but they'll be fine. Emmanuel asks this question, how do I know my repentance is good enough? Okay, Emmanuel, I I would describe it this way. How do you know that your repentance is good enough? We led with that question in the beginning. Let me just give you a uh, 
four-point response. Number one, understand what repentance is. It's a change of mind. It's a turning 180 degrees, not focused on feelings. You can't measure repentance by feelings or emotion, but on how you think and act and live afterwards. We're not saying emotions are bad in repentance, but they're not the measure of repentance. So understand what repentance is. Number two, take seriously the idea of living out your repentance. Repentance needs to be lived out and not just for a day, but over time, it needs to be lived out. Number three, when you repent, give God all you can. Again, Emmanuel, we can't give God perfect sincerity. We can't give God perfect anything. So what do we do? We give to God all the sincerity you have. To the very best of your ability, don't hold anything back. Confess your sins freely, openly to God. Don't try to cover or excuse or minimize in any way. Be perfectly open and honest to God without trying to make yourself look better one bit. But then number four, don't expect that repentance will erase all the consequences of sin. There may be consequences that come from our sin that even if we're forgiven those sins from God, we um, will still have to endure those consequences in this natural world. Uh, so I hope that's helpful for you there, Emmanuel. Let me just go take a look here, a few other places. Um, let me see if we've got any more questions coming in. I'll just give it... Oh, here's an, another one that has come in here. Um, can you give me your take on whether the sons of God were angels or men in Genesis chapter 6, uh, where the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. Michael, I would say this. My opinion, which is a minority opinion among Bible scholars and students throughout the generations. M most people, most Bible commentators and preachers have had a different opinion than the one I'm going to give you here. So I, I recognize that it's not the majority opinion. But my opinion is that there had to be some kind of angelic, or I would say demonic, fallen angels, not faithful angels. Because I, I would regard demonic spirits as being angelic beings. They're just fallen angelic beings. That there was something definitely demonic in that um, Genesis 6 scenario. The main reasons I believe that is, first of all, I think it explains the unnatural offspring that's described in Genesis chapter 6. It describes why God would judge the world so profoundly as with a worldwide flood. And then it also explains the passage in Jude. I can't remember the exact verses. I'm Somehow six and seven comes to mind, but I don't know if that's true, where it talks about angels in former times sinned in a sexually immoral way, like the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
to me, the idea that there was some kind of demonic work there going on is the best explanation of those things. I cannot answer the question, how could a demonic spirit impregnate a human woman? I can't answer that because I don't know. I would suspect that what you had is a unique and no longer allowed by God form of demonic possession. To me, that, that's what I think. I think a form of demonic possession that overwhelmed the personhood and in some sense the physical makeup of that person enough to where unnatural offspring could be produced. Now, again, um, I understand that there's some weaknesses with the approach of saying that uh, it was angelic beings and not just the descendants of Cain or whatever in um, uh, Genesis chapter 6. But to me, it's the best explanation of the biblical data, even with all the difficulties. So I hope that's helpful for you there, Michael. Anna asks this question. Uh, my husband is an alcoholic and an unbeliever. I pray for him, but I feel that none of my prayers get answered. Well, Anna, let me just say, I'm, I'm very sorry to hear of your situation. Very sorry to hear that you have to live with the burden of a husband who's an alcoholic and a husband who's an unbeliever. But Anna, I would just say to you, don't, don't give up praying. I, and I have no explanation to you why it seems that a prayer that was not answered uh, a thousand times may be answered on the thousand and first time. We can't make God answer our prayers. All we can do is cry out to him. And I don't blame you for being discouraged. I don't blame you for feeling that it's such a burden because it is a significant burden. But I, I, I do just want to recommend to you that you keep on praying and don't lose heart. Jesus one time told a story, a parable, uh, and it said that he told this story so that we might pray and not lose heart. And I know, Anna, that that's what God wants for you. Okay, next question comes from David, asks this question. How relevant slash important is it to kneel in private prayer, when in private prayer? David, I, I think that there's importance to it. Now, when you take a look at all the people in the Bible who knelt in prayer, it's a very impressive list. Paul knelt. Jesus knelt in prayer. Good heavens, Jesus knelt in prayer. Uh, Solomon knelt in prayer. Daniel knelt in prayer. Moses knelt in prayer. Many, many people in the Bible knelt in prayer. We have enough kneeling in prayer to show us that it, it's a practice worthy of imitation, but, but we have enough prayer that was not kneeling to show us that it's not like required. So I, I would say most of us should kneel in prayer more than we do but it, it is true that ultimately the posture of our heart is more important than the posture of our body. It's just helpful to understand that sometimes the posture of our body affects the posture of our heart. So, David, I, just to answer how, how 
much should we kneel when we pray? More. <laughs> because I, I think a lot of us, we rarely kneel when we pray, and we could stand to do more of that. All right, our last question today comes from Trisha. Trisha asked this question, do you feel that these scriptures support the idea that a lot of social media platforms are a potential stumbling block for Christians? Well, Trisha, I don't know which particular scriptures you're referring to, but I do simply say, yes, yes, social media platforms are a potential stumbling block for many Christians. Let me be straight to you, dear friend, dear brother, sister. Jesus told us that if we would follow him, that there would be times in our life where we'd have to give up things that are dear to us, that we would have to die to, so to speak. And that's a heavy thing. It's a heavy thing to die to anything. So please, please, please understand that just because something is very dear to you doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't want you to give it up. Jesus wanted us and asked us to give up many things that are dear to us. And I don't doubt that there's some people listening to me right now. Jesus would have you give up a particular social media platform, or maybe all your social media, because while they may be fine for other people, they are very disruptive to your life with God. If that's the case, you need to be real about it. And you need to do what Jesus tells you to do. And that is simply to give up something that's dear to you. So yes, uh, Tricia, I, I would say that this is something, any liberty that we have in our life, we should be real before God about it and simply say, Lord, if you want me to give this up, I will be willing to do it. So I hope that's helpful for you, Tricia. And I hope that's helpful for every one of you able to join us today. Again, it seems to me like we've still had a few technical problems. Uh, discouraging it is, but we'll do the best we can with it. I do want to let everybody know that next week, I will not be doing it from here, my home in the West Coast of uh, the United States. I'll be doing, God willing, and if I'm able to, I'll be doing the live stream live from Germany. I'm going to a city called Siegen, Germany. It's sort of a smaller city in Germany, but I'm going to a city called Siegen, Germany, to Calvary Chapel, Siegen, where I have many dear, dear friends, brothers, and sisters. And I'm going to be there with a lot of wonderful people for a conference that I am very, very much looking forward to. So God willing, and if I live, I'm going to be doing it to you, doing it with you live next week from Germany. It'll be in the evening for me, but we'll still do it at the same time for you, 12 noon West Coast time in the United States. It'll be nine o'clock in the evening there, uh, Central European time. So I hope you can join me next week. Hope you can let other people know and do the work of subscribing and liking and clicking notifications. All of this helps us with our reach. God bless you and thank you for joining us today. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.